is whether or not you knew somebody who was also going. Mm. The more people around you who you knew that were also going, the more likely you were to actually go. It didn't matter you know, whether you were married, if you had children, if you d- didn't have children. That was the single greatest predictor. Um, and so congregations can be extremely powerful in that capacity to mobilize people and, and get them energized around mm-hmm. something. Um, but congregations today, it's somewhat impractical for them to be the, the primary organizers of social activism. You know, I mean, in Adler's time, you know, Felix, Ad- Felix Adler's time, um, that was the primary way that, that charity was done and, and social action was done was through congregations. You know, but today we have thousands of nonprofits out there focused on one particular area of importance with dedicated paid staff to handle a lot of these things. And so, um, you know, congregations can and certainly do play an important support role in that, um, but it is a support role. So I started to say, okay, um, can congregations drive motivation? Can they bring people in, um, you know, with the promise of motivation? And I'm not so sure about that because I think about it say, you know, if you're motivated enough to go and join a congregation, you're probably also motivated enough to go and volunteer directly with these organizations, you know. Um, to me, it's kind of like joining a gym um, where you go there to the gym and then, um, you know, basically all they do is get you really excited about exercise and then you go exercise someplace else. You know? <laughs> um, so show of hands, I mean, how many of you would say you joined the Ethical Society because you didn't think you'd be motivated enough to do something on your own, but you needed a group of people to tell you uh, to get motivated. Oh, well, there are a couple people. <laughs> um, but in the process of doing this uh, work on social justice education, I discovered you know, that there are actually books written specifically on social justice education and doing social justice education, and also arts activism. And so I was particularly drawn to two thinkers on this subject, both Brazilians, such as myself. Uh, one is Paulo Freire, uh, who was an important mm-hmm. educator, and uh, the other one was Augusto Boal. Does anybody know Augusto Boal? Ah, we got some people who do. So Augusto Boal developed something called Theater of the Oppressed, mm-hmm. um, and I was actually very fortunate to find out that the New York Society already works with Theater of the Oppressed NYC, and so I had an opportunity to check out their performance. And the way they work, basically, and it, let me just describe my experience with, with the NYC chapter, they invited a group of people who um, come from transitional housing to put on a play about their transitional housing experience and show all of the unfairness and injustice that goes on there. And then at the end of the play, the audience turns to each other and they talk about what they saw and the problems that they saw. And they start thinking of ways they can fix the problems. Mm. Then, usually some unsuspecting audience member starts it off, they have to then come up on stage, put on the costume of the person um, who they have, think they have a solution for, and reenact the scene over again. Hmm. It, you, you see what I'm mm-hmm. saying? And so then to bring their own ideas to the table, and the people who are, have actually lived through this experience can say, no, 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 that's not going to work, or, oh, you know, maybe that's a really good idea. Um, and Boal did this because, to him, he considered audiences to be, you know, being an audience member as a dehumanizing experience because it took away uh, one of the defining characteristics of being human, which is volition and agency, you know. And so he came up with his own version of the audience, and he called the audience members spect actors. Um, and this actually works in Portuguese, too. <laughs> um, so looking into participatory meaning-making and, uh, you know, the moral imagination 
was really interesting to me, and it led me down uh, to uh, reading more from philosopher Mark Johnson. Has anybody ever heard of Mark Johnson? No? No one? Okay. Well, Mark Johnson frequently pairs up with uh, another fellow, George Lakoff, who you may have heard of. He's a cognitive linguist. He's also become very big um, in terms of talking about political language. You know, he, he talks a lot about a subject called framing, which, you know, for classic example of that is uh, the estate tax, which was renamed by conservatives to be the death tax, you know, <laughs> so immediately comes with that emotional baggage and, and people mm. suddenly start opposing it, even though on a rational level it's exactly the same thing. So, so what is embodiment? And perhaps the best place to start with that is what is disembodiment? Um, now, some of you will notice during the song there, did anybody notice what the sign was for soul? Right, exactly. So it's this idea of the mind being distinct and separate from the body. And not only just distinct and separate, but something that will exist after the body is gone. Um, and so it was a long process by which this happened. And if you look at actually where the words mind, spirit uh, originally come from, they actually come from very bodily experiences. Mind originally derives from the meaning for um, you know, uh, will, and spirit originally derives from the, from the word for breath mm -hmm. in both Greek and in Latin. Um, but over time, we came to see mind as being perfect and eternal, and body became flawed and perishable. You know, we saw mind as being the seat of objective reasoning, and body became, uh, you know, a contaminating force. It introduced emotions that clouded... Um, you know, the, our reasoning abilities. Um, one of the most famous proponents of this idea was Rene Descartes, who many of you remember was famous for saying, uh, cognito ergo sum, I think therefore I am. And part of that thought experiment was to say, well, you know, I can exist as a body without a mind, but I can't exist as a body, or I'm sorry, I can exist as a mind without a body, but I can't exist as a body without a mind. And we know this to be wrong now, but this was the, essentially the basis of his idea. And so, as a result, we get Cartesian dualism, which is still the way we usually frame this mind-body divide. Um, and a lot of philosophers throughout the 20th century uh, pushed back against this. John Dewey was one of the most famous examples who also had fairly close connections with humanism and ethical culture. Um, but conceptual dualism continues to be prominent in modern philosophy of mind. So one of the ideas behind the embodied mind uh, comes out of evolution. And one of the ideas there is that the, the brain actually evolved for the purposes of movement. Um, you know, the ability to sort of recognize danger and to move out of the way of it or recognize food and, and move towards it. Um, is, is essentially the basis through which we developed our brains. And so, as a result, the thought is that our reasoning capacity also is influenced by um, the parts of our brain that are originally designed for movement. Um, one example of the evolution of the brain for movement is a creature called the sea squirt. Has anybody ever heard of this? <laughs> it's a, oh, got a couple people. So it's a little guy who, in his larval stage, will swim around in the water and then attach itself to a rock, and in its mature sexual stage will remain uh, permanently immobile for the rest of its life. 
And so it has a rather sophisticated, it has a rather sophisticated uh, central nervous system in those early days. But once it attaches itself to a rock, um, it actually breaks down part of that nervous system because it no longer needs it for movement. Um, as one scientist explained this in a rather uh, sensational way, he said that once it's permanently attached itself to something, it eats its own brain, not unlike tenure. <laughs> <laughs> And so there's also thoughts that our movement has a lot to do with the development of the theory of mind as well, and empathy. Um, because you know, we have uh, this system, these systems in our brains called uh, the mirror neuron system. Now, there's some debate over whether these are actual specific neurons or whether it's just sort of a, a pattern of neurons working together. But what we know is, is that if you look at um, MRIs, we can see that when a person does a particular action, the person who's hooked up to the MRI machine, their brain lights up in the same way as though they were doing the action themselves. And so the idea is, is that, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, we started off being very interested in other people's movements for, for obvious reasons, you know, from, for danger, for um, you know, possible friendship. And then gradually we started to working our way to thinking about, well, okay, what is this person actually thinking? What is the internal mental state of this person? <clears throat> so when we're talking about embodied cognition, we're really talking about experience through our peripheral nervous system. So, you know, the nerves, the ganglia, um, all the different types of receptors. And, you know, we usually know, we talk about five different senses, right? So sight, sound, taste, touch, smell. Um, but there's actually a couple more that, that usually get included in there now by cognitive scientists. An important one is balance. Um, <laughs> Another one would be uh, the ability to detect hot and cold, um, and also pressure. And when we're, all, we're talking about embodied cognition, we're also talking about unconscious cognition, so the things that are sort of running underneath the hood um, that we really can't sort of directly tap into and control. <clears throat> and then beyond embodied mind, you also get some thinkers who will go so far as to suggest things such as extended mind, so in this case, an example of extended mind would be the way in which we bring in material culture to take over cognitive functions. So let's just say the two of us have to meet somewhere, and I choose to memorize the address, and you choose to write it down. So that paper, according to the people who subscribe to extended mind, becomes an extension of your consciousness. It becomes an extension of your, um, you know, not in any kind of a, you know, spiritual sense, but just in the idea that it's taking over um, a function that your brain would otherwise, would otherwise be performing. So Lakoff and Johnson together uh, created this idea of the conceptual metaphor. And their argument is that actually a lot of our thinking comes out of metaphor because we, you know, have evolved for the need for movement. Most of our... Um, Thinking and abstract thinking comes out of um, sensory motor experience. And so they look a lot at how we speak in metaphors. So, for example, we talk about uh, love being like a journey. You know, where is this going? How are we going to get there? And, of course, you're not necessarily physically going anywhere. Um, a lot of terms that we use today don't necessarily have met metaphorical value today. But if you look at their origins... Uh, they do. So even the word abstract comes from, um, originally comes from to draw out. Uh, conjecture comes from to throw together. 
reject is to literally to throw back. And so they don't have metaphorical value today, but they did at one time in the past. And I encourage you to, to pick up an etymological dictionary or go to a website that allows you to explore etymologies, and you'll see that a lot of these terms today um, actually have their origins in real physical interactions with the world. Um, one example of this would be high and low social status. You know? um, if you think about it, there's really nothing physical about high and low social status that would indicate uh, some sort of a connection. Yet, you know, we often talk that way, high status, low status, upper class, lower class, mm -hmm. you know, and, and more ominously, superhuman and subhuman. Um, but it's not related to physical height. You know, the poor people could just as easily be living up on the hill while the rich people are living down on the beach, you know. Um, and they actually did a study with chimpanzees that came out this fall where they found that chimpanzees may very well have conceptual metaphors in this way as well. What they did was they set up a computer with an image of a high-status member of the chimpanzee group and a low-status member of the chimpanzee group. And what they found was that when prompted to pick out the high-status member, the chimpanzees were much more likely to do that if the high-status picture was on top, indicating that they have some sort of an idea of this as being physical height as well. Another study recently also found that time, space, and social relations are encoded using the same neural networks in our brains, which might explain why we have distant relatives and close friends, um, you know, why we grow together, you know, grow together or we grow apart. And other embodied cognition studies have looked a lot at metaphor as well. So another, one of the Yale studies looked at trust and holding a hot cup of coffee versus holding a cold cup of coffee. And they found that people were more trusting if they were holding a hot cup of coffee than if they were holding a cold cup of coffee. <laughs> uh, University of Toronto study found that if people thought of a memory of social exclusion as opposed to a memory of social inclusion or some kind of a happy memory, that they found the room to be five degrees colder and the people who thought of a happy memory. Wow. Yeah. Um, in another study, they looked at uh, our perceptions of the past and the future, and they found that people who were thinking about the future were leaning slightly forward. People who were thinking about the past were leaning slightly back. They did another study where they showed a gender-neutral face, and they found that if participants were holding a soft ball, they were more likely to think that it was a female face. If they were holding a hard ball, they were more likely to think it was a male face. <laughs> now, it should be noted that you know, with all these studies, you know, we're going to have to look at um, different cultures to see whether or not you know, these, are things, these metaphors are things that are sort of hardwired into the brain or whether it's that our particular culture creates metaphors that we then um, use to, to make these sort of unconscious um, reasonings about things. They also found that in another experiment, if they gave participants heavy clipboards versus light clipboards, they would increase the value of money. So they thought money, you know, if they were shown a, a note, they would think that that was worth more than if they were holding a lighter clipboard. Um, in another study, they asked participants to think about moral transgressions, such as cheating or adultery, and those who thought about those moral transgressions versus those who didn't were more likely at the end of the session to accept an offer for a, an antiseptic. 
And at the University of Luxembourg, uh, two years ago, they did a study where they had different participants play 15 minutes of violent video games. Mm-hmm. And they had two groups of people. One uh, group was very new at playing violent video games. The other group had lots of experience playing violent video games. And at the end of the experiment, they gave each group um, choices on different prizes that they could pick out, different gifts that they could walk away with. And <clears throat> they found that the new players, the ones who were newly exposed to the violent video games, were much more likely to take hygienic products um, than, than the ones who were more experienced with violent video games. And the University of Luxembourg termed, termed this the Macbeth effect. <laughs> <clears throat> so what are the implications for embodied cognition then? If we sort of understand that you know, we are you know, bodily creatures and that... And that our bodily experiences play a large role in how we think. How, how can that begin to shape what we do? And so one of the important areas that, that I was looking at is, is bodily concern. So in our society, we do spend a lot of time thinking about bodies. You know, we think, you know, am I too fat? Am I too skinny? Am I too tall? Am I too short? You know, and we make all these judgments about other people based on their bodies. Um, you know, is someone pretty, is someone ugly? So we tend to respond to this, you know, in social justice efforts, we tend to respond to this um, by challenging harmful body images, right? Um, we challenge these, these sort of social ideals and, you know, say, are they realistic? Do they make any kind of sense? You know, are people being hurt as a result of this? You know, we, we challenge the concept of the gender binary. You know, we, we fight for reproductive rights. Uh, you know, we, we fight against sexual violence and human trafficking, and, you know, we challenge sexism and ableism and ageism. But in all of these conversations that we're having, we're treating the body as the object of perception and action, you know. We're rarely thinking of it, thinking of it in terms of it being the experience that we're having. Experience is something we leave for the mind. We, you know, we are experiencing the world. We don't think of experience as, so much as a bodily experience. Now, sometimes we do. You know, if you're having, <laughs> you know, if someone comes up and tickles you, you say, oh, that person tickled me. You don't say, that person tickled my body. You know? <laughs> um, but when we're thinking about things in a little bit more of an abstract sense, we usually tend to make it more about my body as having its experience versus me. <clears throat> and so on some level, I think that if we recognize everybody as being an embodied creature, an embodied mind, um, it can sort of help us work through some of these discussions that we're having. You know, one of the, the great examples that I can think of when we sort of forget our own embodiment was when um, Justice Sonia Sotomayor was, was being confirmed, and there was a whole bunch of old white men who were saying, you know, can she be impartial? Can she be objective? You know? <laughs> Suddenly, body was very much of concern, you know? <laughs> but they never thought about their own bodies, the fact that they have their own set of experiences, their own cultural backgrounds, their own... Um, biases. And part of the reason for that is, is because the formal logic that we use in law today was created by other old white men. You know? <laughs> and so, you know, Lakoff and Johnson roundly reject the idea that there is any kind of reason that happens in the absence of emotion. You know? But we sometimes think that that is true because the reasoning tools that we've developed have those emotions already baked right into them. We don't even mm. think of them as being emotions anymore. You know, and so what is presented as a neutral framework is actually not neutral at all. And so if we sort of look at that and, and remind people of that, we can 
sort of have these conversations in a way that maybe we can actually change the way people think about some of these things versus just, just butting heads against each other. <clears throat> and going back to framing a little bit, I think that embodiment also has interesting implications for ethical culture and for humanism as well. Um, so we tend to get, not necessarily here, but certainly in the larger movement as a whole, we get into these discussions about theist versus non-theist. Um, and to me, in, in, terms of, in terms of framing, you know, atheist becomes a problem because when you have this term atheist, you're saying, I am not a theist, right? So immediately, theist becomes the default. I mean, consider this for a moment. Would you ever imagine a gay man identifying himself as non-straight or a woman identifying herself as non-male? No, because as soon as you do that, you're saying that being heterosexual and being male is a sort of a default and you're deviating from that somehow. You know? So I like the idea of embodiment because to me, it, it, instead of saying, I don't believe in God, I don't you know, um, believe in the supernatural, I can say that I think that the mind and body are one. You know? And so by doing that, it changes the nature of the conversation. And that's certainly from Johnson's perspective a big part of what, it, what embodied cognition means. It means the inseparability of the body and mind. And he also extends that to aspects of spirituality as well in terms of talking about secular spirituality, um, that it's never a transcendent experience. You're never actually transcending the world or your own body, but it's a horizontal experience that you're um, seeing yourself as part of something bigger within this world. Hmm. And embodied cognition is very timely right now. Um, you know, I would say that disembodied experience is generally becoming more of the norm in our society as we are increasingly more sedentary and, you know, interacting a lot more with technology. Um, and it leads to a desire for embodied experiences, you know. So, you know, yoga and martial arts are becoming much more popular these days, mindfulness meditation, you know, and I've seen a lot of things now like uh, color runs and black light runs, you know, that, that people are doing where they, you know, are covered in dyes and, and um, black light uh, colors and you know, another example is Burning Man. I, I bought this book called uh, Theater in a Crowded Fire, which looks at the spiritual aspects of Burning Man. And when you look at the breakdown of the religious beliefs of people at Burning Man, they are the nuns. I mean, we talk, you know, humanists talk a lot about the nuns. These are the people that are going to, you know, cause us to explode as a movement. And when you look at who they are, they, they very much, I mean, only 6% of them have any kind of identification with an um, established religious tradition, you know? And they are very much interested in having this sort of bodily experience. I mean, as one person put it, they said, I am not a physical being having a spiritual experience. I am a spiritual being having a physical experience. Mm -hmm. And so digital media, to me, is sort of the Big Mac of our information diet, right? It's, it's calorie-rich but nutrient-poor. Um, you know, they... Our devices push a lot of visual and, to a lesser degree, audio um, experience to us, you know, stimulus, but not so much in terms of taste or touch or smell mm. or balance. And I think speeches are also pretty much the same. I mean, right now you're watching me talk and you're hearing me, you know, but I'm not really engaging any of the other senses of your body. You know, it's two out of six. <clears throat> 
And so really, you can kind of get this experience at home. If you want a one-way flow of information, you can just go watch a TED Talk. You don't have to listen, come here and listen to me. And so then this started making me think a little bit about um, you know, how ethical, ethical culture evolved in the first place. And so with Christianity, you have a religion that is primarily centered around right belief. It's about um, you know, accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and that is your path to salvation. I mean, this is a basic, fundamental Christian principle. Um, and Protestants took it even further, saying, that's actually the only thing you need to do. You know, so justifi- justification by faith. And so it makes sense, then, to have one person standing up in front of the room, talking out to a group of people, and reinforcing this one thing that you have to walk away with, this one belief that you have to have. Um, and Reformed Judaism ultimately ended up modeling itself off of the German Protestant environment in which, in which it emerged. Um, similarly, the medieval universities developed out of this Christian concept. I mean, most of the uh, professors at, at the medieval universities, actually right up until the time of Adler in the 1870s, were all, all of these classes were taught by clergy. So the way we've structured our classrooms, even in our public schools today, is still very much based on this one-way flow of information from the speaker to this audience that ultimately has its roots in, um, in the Christian concept of right belief. But Adler didn't set up something about right belief. He set up something that was about deed before creed, you know, so it was about doing the right thing. And so to me, you know, I think we say we act to elicit the best in others, but I mean, tell me right now, are you eliciting the best out of your neighbor sitting next to you right now as you're listening mm-hmm. to me speak? Are they eliciting the best out of you? I don't think so. <laughs> um, and so then at the end, we'll have this little interaction period where you can get your, ask your questions. Um, but, you know, is that really enough? I mean, I've seen at certain societies, I'm not going to say which, you know, where there's sort of arguments over the question and answer period now, you know, that, that um, I mean, for one thing, what do, what do some people do, the question and answer period? They ask this, they get up, they make this really long statement, and at the end of it they say, don't you agree? So it's a question. <laughs> you know, because we haven't created space for them to share. We've created the space for them to, to get more information from me, basically. Um, Peter Block, who wrote this book called Community, at one point says that the question and answer period is patriarchy's answer to interactivity. Hmm. <laughs> So this leads me to the question, what is my vision for the future then? How, how would I use embodied cognition to, to really reshape the way we do things? And there's actually a whole field now called embodied learning, which is all based on the idea of taking this concept of embodiment and applying it to um, our learning experiences. And so I basically want us to have adult education programs which are centered around arts and movement, you know, doing some role-playing, you know, and really working out a lot of important ethical issues through that. Um, now, I sort of have three basic learning objectives that, that I've kind of laid out in my mind. The first is kind of working on self-improvement, right? And so this is mainly a way to get people in the door, you know, because if you... <laughs> because honestly, I mean, if you tell people, we're going to have a class on ethics, everyone says, well, a lot of people need that. <laughs> But if you say, we're going to have a class that's going to help you live a happier life, you know, that, a more meaningful mm-hmm. life, you know, mm-hmm. that might be something that will be initially more appealing to mm-hmm. people. So that's stage one. And so, you know, we, we bring in a lot of things to try to do that. 
And then at stage two, we start looking at interpersonal relationships. You know? So we, mm-hmm. we start uh, trying to build compassion and kindness for the people around us and you know, work on how we communicate with the other people around us. Right? And then at stage three, you start to say, okay, now I'm feeling compassionate and I, you know, I have this love. You know, I need to spread this elsewhere. I need to look at the problems in the world and look at the, the bigger systems and try to find ways to do that. And I can do that now because since I'm, you know, really ready to go on a personal level and I'm super good at communicating with people now and working and organizing, I can now go out and take on some of these really big issues in the world. Now, of course, not everybody's going to go through those same steps in the same kind of a way, but it gives us a broad set of learning objectives that we want people to, to come away with from these um, different types of experiences. And so that's actually why I set up the blog, Moral Studio, because I was interested in, in developing these ideas. And, and for the first few months, I was sort of just tinkering away in my basement, working on these things all by myself. And I realized, actually, no, I should put this out there for the world and just see what other people can come up with, you know, because, um, you know, I haven't really designed a program from scratch before. So I thought, maybe there are people who can, can really help me with that. So if you have any, any interest in participating, there we go. <laughs> if you have any interest in getting involved in that, please, by all means, um, I would love to connect with you and, and we can work on all these different things. Um, so I just want to say in closing that to me, the culture of ethical culture is extremely important. Um, there was a newspaper article from the 1880s that was talking about Adler and the work that he was doing, and it incorrectly referred to the New York Society as the New York Society for the Promotion of Ethical Culture. And to me, that's exactly what we should be about. We should be about creating a way of thinking and a way of life that we can share with other people to make the world a better place. It's not just about getting good people together. It's about making good people better and happier and spreading that. So, thank you. Thank you.